Our sermon text for this morning as we are continuing looking at the living hope that is ours in Christ despite the suffering and the hostility that we might face for our faith in Christ in 1 Peter is found in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 through 11. And here we are this morning in 1 Peter 4 beginning in verse 7. This is God's word. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we would ask now that as it goes forth, that you would allow your spirit to work in our hearts, in our minds, to strengthen our faith and to awaken faith and to draw us once again to the person of Jesus Christ. For your name's sake, we pray this. Amen. C.S. Lewis ends the last battle, which is the final book of his beloved Chronicles of Narnia, with perhaps my favorite paragraph of that whole series. And this is what he writes. He says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at least, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. You know, as believers, we are looking forward with joyful expectation to the beginning of chapter one of the great story, which will go on forever and ever. And that outcome That eternal conclusion is our living hope, a hope that keeps us faithfully sojourning in this world in the title and the cover page of God's great story. We sojourn here because for a moment we're still in that final chapter. We're waiting for that last period of the old story to go down on the page of time and history. And that chapter... Uh, That final chapter began with the coming of Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father on high. And Peter has been showing us then that everything in this world is moving towards that final movement when this living hope will be complete and the great story of Christ's kingdom is written upon this earth. And he's explained that God's people are being guarded or kept by God himself through faith for a salvation that will be revealed at the last time. 
He also said that it is in this hope uh, in which we find joy, in which we rejoice, even though for a time we might suffer various trials. Because we know everything is moving towards that end goal where God will be glorified forever. As we read in verse 11 of our text this morning, to Him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it is in that reality, in the light of that truth, that we live out our lives in this world with each other as God's people. And that is what Peter is calling us to this morning. He is calling us to the fact that God is gathering us together as his covenant people so that we might glorify him by serving one another. And this is, as we know, a radically different way to live life than what most people do in the world. You see, many people look at this world and what they try to do is escape the reality of life because they're actually fearful of it. They're fearful of the end of all things. Peter said in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. In fact, that little phrase is going to govern everything else he's going to say and the verses we're going to look at this morning. Now, when we read that little statement, the end of all things is at hand, the, the temptation is to think, well, he's talking about the end of the world, right? But notice what he says again, very carefully. He says the end of all things is at hand. He's talking about the conclusion of a process the, the bringing to an end, uh, the final outcome or goal of a plan. And the final act has already started. The, the final chapter is already being written and its conclusion draws nigh. And certainly that does include the fate of this physical world, but it is far broader than just that. It isn't just the end of the universe It's the conclusion of the great story as we will enter into that never-ending chapter of God's peace and joy when Christ returns. So Peter is talking here about the end purpose of all history from creation through this present moment. All the tragedy and all the drama and the achievements and the failures and the faiths and the doubts of all people from all time is coming to its end. That's what he's talking about here. And he speaks of it with this this bold certitude. The way he, he writes it, it leaves no doubt that the end of all things has already begun. It is happening. And it's happening because Jesus did come and he did die for sinners and he did raise on the third day and he has now ascended to the right hand of God, ruling as the sovereign king over all and he is coming again. So all the key events in this process of redemption, this history of salvation that God has been writing, they have all already happened and we are in the final stage of the game. Now, for many people in the world, if they hear that, it would rather be a reality that they would choose to ignore. You see, they don't like the idea of the end of all things. 
They would rather not shape their lives around that truth. Instead, they live in a way that tries to escape the realities of this world. And so people turn to many things to try to distract themselves from what they see happening in their lives and all around them. The world, of course, is full of turmoil and strife and suffering and pain and disease and death and struggles. We're witnessing that even this week with the with the uh, new war that is being uh, waged. We're witnessing this dark tones of, of sin being painted upon the canvas of this world. And it causes people to be filled with fear. And so many people, when they realize the frailty of life and they fear the end of all things, they try to escape that reality. They turn to the things that Peter spoke of last week or what we considered last week back in verse 3 when he said, uh, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Those are all escapes, an attempt to avoid the reality of this fallen world. And so people turn to the abuses of sex and drugs and drink and food and relationships, and they worship whatever idol they think might deliver them from this fear, this terror they feel within their hearts. In the times past, those idols went by other names, Zeus or Ares or Hera or Jupiter, Juno, Baal, Asherah, and Molech. But now those idols go by other names, social media, political ideologies, careers, social status, self-expression. These all become escapes trying to avoid what is so plain and clear before them. That is that we as humans, we need a deliverance. We need to be rescued from this world and the mess that we have made. And so people try to escape it through their own Savior, but there is no escaping that reality. It keeps coming up before us. The end of all things truly is at hand. It's already here and happening. But it's not a reason to fret and to fear. Because if you were in Christ, it's actually a reason to rejoice. Because in Christ, we have this real hope for the end of the age. And from that hope, we are able to live as God's people in a community of faith, a covenant community, and we can grow and flourish and thrive in this life as citizens of his kingdom while we await for that final fulfillment of all things. And so our text this morning calls us to things, there are four of them, that we do because of what Jesus has done for us. And all of these come from our identity as the church, as God's people. All of these are done within the context of the church as the covenant community of God. You know, Peter has already said much about how as Christians, as believers, we are to live our lives in response to a world that is hostile towards us because of our faith. Now he is beginning to say, look, this is how you, as God's people, Treat one another and live together as my people as you sojourn through this world waiting for that final period on the page of salvation history. 
And the first thing he says, or he shows us, is that Jesus gives you access to God, so therefore devote yourself to prayer. Again, verse 7 reads, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Being self-controlled and sober-minded is to guide us into prayer. It means that when we are confronted with the harsh realities of this world, that we are living in the end of the age, that the end of all things is at hand, that we do not fear, we do not panic, we think clearly, resting upon the peace that is ours because God or Christ has given us access to God. And so we can come before him in prayer. Peter is calling us here as believers to to have minds, a life of the mind that is affected by the gospel, the truth of the gospel that causes us to pray. You see, prayer requires clear thinking that comes from remembering what God has done on our behalf. Back in 1 Peter 1, He had this to say regarding being sober-minded or clear thinking. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds for action. Be ready, be resolved, think clearly. And how do you do that? As he said, by setting your hope fully on the grace of God brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Specifically, he has in mind the final revelation of Christ when he returns. And so the revealing of Christ is uh, then this thing that gives us this sober-mindedness and drives us to pray. Rather than panic, rather than try to escape the reality of the world that we live in, we pray. We devote ourselves to prayer. Jesus has removed every boundary, including your own guilt and sin, to give you free access to the very presence of Almighty God. You can go to Him in this very moment and lift up your heart and your mind to Him. Share with Him your burdens and your cares and your fears. And He will listen. So when we see suffering in our own lives and in this world, when we see that we are definitely in the end of all times, that it is at hand, we do not fear because we have the sweet waters of the never empty pool of God's grace to draw upon in the face of all chaos and difficulty and tyranny and trials. And we do that simply through prayer. We don't need any vehicle or tool to do that. Simply lifting our voices, our hearts and minds in prayer to God. And yet if we let the cares of this life and the cares of this world distract us, what we find is, is like Peter says here, our prayers are hindered. We we don't pray because we aren't thinking clearly. We aren't thinking based upon the hope that is ours. And yet, Jesus calls us as His children. In in Luke 21, He says, Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. Talking about what's going to happen in the world and what is happening in the world. 
so that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Be awake, be alert, be sober-minded and pray. So Jesus has given you access to God Almighty. Therefore, devote yourself to Him in prayer. With eyes wide open, pray for this fallen world. Pray for your neighbors and your friends and your family. Pray for your church. Pray for God to complete His great work in this world and finalize His kingdom. The second thing that we are called to in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand as God's people is not only do we devote ourselves to prayer, But because Jesus has brought you into God's family, you are then to demonstrate the love to which you have been called. Verse 8 reads, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Because the end of the age is at hand, keep loving the family that God has placed you into, making you His child. The, the imperative force here is the idea of keeping this love. It's to be continual, a continual expression of this love. Always active. That's why Peter uses the word earnest to describe it. It's, it's consistent, intentional, continual. And it is a love that does things. It's not simply a feeling Rather, it is an action, an activity. It is doing something for someone else. Earnest brotherly love is love that is demonstrated by the life that we live for others. And this is the kind of love that makes the Spirit-empowered effort to glorify God by observing His law in relation to other people a real thing. Uh, We need this love if we are going to keep God's law as best as we are able through the Spirit, not perfectly, um, in regards to our neighbors, particularly our closest neighbors, our covenant family. See, you can't do the things God calls you to do without love. And that is why Peter says here, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And it will cover a multitude of sins. In other words, it extinguishes sin and it sucks the oxygen out of it so that it cannot flame up and burn. Now, Peter is not saying here that when the church demonstrates love towards one another that we are covering sin in an atoning way. Jesus does that. Nor is he saying here that, well, you should just ignore someone's sin. That's not what he's saying. That would go against the rest of the Word of God as well. Instead, what he is calling us to here is simply to be forgiving, to not allow sin to spring up in our hearts, particularly hatred. In fact, Peter's words sound a lot like Proverbs ten twelve, which reads this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And the idea here is that of forbearance. It's the old word forbearance. You don't hear it much anymore, but it's a great word. So sin committed in the covenant community of God's people, it definitely has a way of dividing and destroying. Why? Because it stirs up hatred and bitterness. But if we are forgiving, 
If we do not respond to sin with more sin, but with loving forbearance, then we build one another up and we smother the sin from turning into a raging inferno. And so Peter says, because God has placed you through Christ into his family, demonstrate love that covers sin. Third thing he says here is that Jesus has welcomed you with his grace, so determine to be hospitable to others. Devote yourselves to prayer, demonstrate love, and determine to be hospitable to others within your covenant family. And so he says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In the scriptures, we usually see instructions regarding hospitality directed towards strangers. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, you'll see that God gave the nation of Israel, the old covenant uh, people of God, um, many laws on how they were to treat strangers within their midst. And they were always designed around this idea of hospitality, of showing hospitality. But Peter's instruction here is unique because it's all about showing hospitality toward others within the church. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't to show hospitality to those outside of the faith. We ought to. In fact, we can understand that, right? We can understand how showing hospitality to strangers is a means to bring the gospel into their lives. Open doors, often open hearts. It's a means of evangelizing, of proclaiming the gospel. So why then does he say to the church, you need to be hospitable towards one another? Specifically, Well, it's because of this. Hospitality is vital for the life and worship of the church. If you go back to the book of Acts, before churches were able to appropriate their own buildings, where did they meet? They met in each other's homes because that's the only buildings they had access to. And if believers did not open their homes to other brethren, then meeting on the Lord's Day for worship to fulfill God's command to gather as His people and worship Him, it would have been very difficult. And there was this connection then we see all through the book of Acts and into the New Testament between a warm and welcoming hospitality and worship. And this was especially true for Peter's original audience in ancient Turkey as they lived in the middle of the society that absolutely hated them because they were Christians. The church needed to be a welcoming place, a place of safety, of care and concern for the well-being of all believers because the world was certainly not welcoming to them. And opening up their homes for other believers then, especially for worship, was a kingdom-building activity. And showing this kind of hospitality, believers demonstrate the gracious welcome of Christ who brought us into His fold with open arms. Jesus was hospitable to you. In fact, Peter knew the welcoming grace of Jesus very well. You go back to when he fails Christ and he denies him three times at that point where Jesus really needed him as his friend. 
And then Jesus dies and is resurrected. And of course, Peter has witnessed the resurrection. But he still feels the sting of his denial in his heart. And so what does Jesus do? Well, John tells us the story in his gospel. He finds them while Peter and the other disciples as they're fishing one day. And he prepares a breakfast of fried fish and, and bread. And they sit there on the beach having this breakfast of fish and bread. Jesus is sharing a meal with his wounded disciple. He is showing him this plain, simple, ordinary act of hospitality. And through that, he extends to him his welcoming grace and restores Peter to his side. That's the kind of hospitality Peter is calling us to as Christians to demonstrate to one another that we would welcome each other as Jesus has welcomed us. Because what does that do? It ministers the grace of the gospel to the hearts of one another. So he says then, show this grace-filled hospitality. Decide to be hospitable to one another because of the warm grace of Christ that He has extended to you. And finally, the final instruction Peter gives us here this morning is that Jesus became a servant for you to save you. Therefore, dedicate yourself to serve the church with the gifts God has given you. So devote yourself to prayer. Demonstrate love and hospitality and dedicate yourself to serve one another. Verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Notice Peter doesn't leave any room here to not serve one another. It's just assumed you're going to serve one another because you all have a gift. If you are united to Christ in faith, you are a servant of Christ and you serve Jesus by serving his church and God has equipped you as one of his children with gifts to be able to do so. Now, not everyone serves in the same way, in the same function Because after all, Peter speaks of the varied grace of God. There are many different gifts that we use to serve him by serving each other. But if God has ransomed you through the work of Jesus and made you his child, he has in his grace then equipped you with something, with some gifting or ability that you can use to be a blessing and benefit to others. So we don't all serve in the same way, but we all serve in some way. While not everyone can do the same thing, we all can do something because we have all received a gift. Now, Peter doesn't go into the same detail here as he outlines gifts uh, that, for example, the Apostle Paul does. He simply gives us two separate categories of gifts that God gives his people for their benefit and for the building of his kingdom. First, he speaks of 
speaking gifts. He says there are speaking gifts. These are, of course, the gifts of teaching and of preaching the word of God, which the Lord calls some to do and equips some to do within the church for the the building up of the faith of his people. This is why Peter says that when those who have this speaking gift, they are to speak as the oracles of God. That is to say, they they teach and they preach not their own message, not some new revelation, but what God has already revealed through His Word, God's message, the Gospel. It must be a proclamation of God's unchanging revelation. The Bible explains that When God's word is faithfully proclaimed, it is attended to by his spirit in such a way that it effectively ministers the grace of God to those who hear. That's why we call preaching a means of grace. It is God's way of communicating his grace to you to build you up and strengthen you in faith. And those who have this gift who preach and teach the word of God, do so as representatives of God's voice to the covenant community. Secondly, Peter mentions there are serving gifts. Uh, He says, whoever serves, serve by the strength that God supplies. And again, this is varied. There are many, many different serving gifts. And he doesn't go into detail what those look like. He just wants you to understand that they are there and that you serve through the grace of God, the strength that he supplies you. God does not paint the canvas of his church in one color, thankfully, but he uses a brilliant spectrum of colors. And if we look deeply into this work that he is building and fashioning, we find details that are often uh, we miss at first. Those are those things that people do that are in the background, the shading, the highlighting that fills in this great masterpiece that is Christ's church. And without those, the picture would be incomplete. It wouldn't look right. You need all that shading and contour for it to be the brilliant masterpiece that it is. You see, all your service, whether it's simply praying or preparing the things for communion or helping in worship or printing a bulletin or whatever it is, all of it matters in the kingdom of God. Now, many Christians ask the question, well, how do I know what my gift is? How do I serve? And there's, you can go online, and there are many tools that are out there that try to tell you, tell you how to find your spiritual gift. I'm going to tell you right now, most of those are not helpful. They're largely based in pop psychology. They have little, little benefit in actually figuring out how you can serve God's people. In fact, I would encourage you just avoid them. The answer to finding what gift God has given you is actually very, very easy. It's not complicated at all. And we find it right here in Peter's instructions to serve one another. And it's exactly that. Serve one another as good stewards. In other words, find something to do and simply start doing it. Find something and be faithful in doing that. And you will soon find out whether that is what God has called you to do, if that's what he has gifted to you to do or not. And then he probably has something else for you. And that will become very evident to you and to others. 
See, the call is simply just be faithful and serve. And then it will work itself out. It's not that complicated. Again, we don't do this service in our own strength, but as Peter says, by the strength God supplies, the strength is already there. You just have to go and serve. And this brings us then to Peter's final point. And it is the very reason why God is doing all of this, why he calls us to serve, to dedicate ourselves to service, to devote ourselves to prayer, to demonstrate love and hospitality. He began this text by telling us the end of all things is at hand. And rather than reacting as the world does, usually in fear and panic and anxiety and despair, rather than trying to escape the reality uh, of this world through idolatrous pursuit of our own passions and selfish desires, we are called as God's people to have joy. And we have that joy because we know that through this process as it's coming to its end that God will receive the glory that is due his name see our joy comes from the hope that God is shaping all the contours of history into that great final purpose his own glory that's what this whole thing is all about that God would be glorified as the catechism says the chief end of man is what? To enjoy God and glorify Him forever. See, through Jesus, you have access to God. So devote yourself to prayer for the glory of God. Through Jesus, He has placed you into a family. So demonstrate an earnest love that forgives others and shows forbearance for the glory of God. And through Jesus, God has extended his gracious welcome to you. So determine to be hospitable to your brothers and sisters for the glory of God. And Jesus became a servant to rescue you from your sins. So dedicate yourself to serve him by serving each other for the glory of God. We could summarize it all like this. The end of all things is at hand so that God would be glorified in all things. Because to Him belongs the glory and the dominion that is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. And here's why that is such beautifully good news for you and me. Because we look at these things Peter calls us to and we acknowledge, yes, this is wonderful. This is how we should be as a church. Yet we look at our lives and we say, uh, I don't love like I should. Sometimes I do struggle to have a clear mind that prays. Sometimes I find it hard to forgive my brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes I do complain about others instead of having a welcoming and gracious spirit of hospitality towards them. And sometimes I would rather just not serve others. I would rather be served myself. Or I serve simply out of a sense of duty rather than real joy. And so you stand back at all of that and you wonder, does this even make any difference in this world? 
Is the church of Jesus Christ really fulfilling the mission to which God has called it? The answer is yes, and it is yes because God will be glorified. He's not going to let anything else happen. He is chiefly concerned about his glory above all things, and so he will fulfill all things for his glorious sake. And he does that through imperfect people who stumble and fail and struggle to pray and to serve. So we can rely on him, though, because it is us who he uses. We can rely on him and that strength he supplies is all sufficient grace. And so what it really comes down to as we look at this text is simply this glorify your God. Glorify your God by being the people he has called you to be as you serve one another. Devote yourselves to prayer, demonstrate love, determine to show hospitality and dedicate yourself to serving one another. And God will continue to work and continue to write out this final chapter. And one day that last period will be written. And then comes our Lord and Savior, and it will begin that new story that will never end, that story of peace that we all are hoping for. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the truth that it reveals. We're thankful that you have called us as your people and put us in a community of faith, a covenant community where we can show love and hospitality, where we can stir one another up to pray fervently for this world and for each other and where we can serve one another through the gifts that you give us. Help us to be who we are, to be this church, to support one another even as we feel the weight of living in the end of all things. And let us rejoice that it truly is the end of all things because it is the great... uh, story that is coming, the story of your glory in which we hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.